based upon having the proper balance of the four basic body humors. Humor is another name for body fluids, is, is what it is. And um, there are four basic body fluids. Those in the ancient world believed need to be in balance. Blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. And if these fluids were out of balance, why then your health would be at stake and uh, you would feel bad, you would be ill, and it was thought what you need to do is balance these fluids back and you would be the healthy you again. And it can be done in various ways. Um, for instance, if you starved yourself, some of these fluids would naturally expunge from you. If you vomited, that was oftentimes seen as medicinal because it would take some fluids out of you. Or if you're bleeding, a lot of times that was seen as a sign of healing and so you would... Uh, Uh, take some of the blood out of you. And all four of these body fluids in proper balance, you'd be restored. Now, as people believed these things, it was only logical for doctors to engage in the practice of bloodletting. The intentional opening up of a vein or artery so blood flows out so as to balance your four body fluids. Again, now historically, this practice goes way back. Um, Hippocrates, known as the father of medicine, Fifth uh, century BC, he practiced bloodletting. It's a long time ago, and in fact, bloodletting kept being practiced until really the late 19th century, <clears throat> late 1800s. It's really when it finally stopped. In fact, even George Washington, our first president, you know, how he died. He died of uh, a throat infection, but. Shortly before his throat infection, he had had a uh, horse accident, which he'd fallen off the horse, and so they wanted to restore his health. So what they did is they took four pounds of blood out of his body. That's 1.7 liters. That's like a third of his blood taken out. And um, I think his throat infection was probably subsequent to that and probably as a result of that. George Washington, 1799, practicing bloodletting. In fact, even after George Washington died, the practice continued for another hundred years or so. And here's a, something a man named Joseph Pancoast wrote in 1844. This is like a, a medical journal. So for you medical types, Darcy and my father, wherever he is, you can, you can grasp this maybe better. He wrote, justifying the practice of bloodletting, 1844. He said the opening, and so I just want to show you that they had good reason why they thought bloodletting was a good thing. He said, the opening of superficial vessels for the purpose of extracting blood constitutes one of the most common operations of the practitioner. The principal results, which in effect are this, five results, five benefits from letting blood just flow out of your body. First, the diminution of the mass of blood by which the overloaded capillary or larger vessels of some affected parts may be relieved, right? Your capillaries are really burdened, so you've got to take some of the blood out so your capillaries will feel better. Second, the modification of force and frequency of the heart's action, right? You take some blood out and your heart doesn't have to work quite as hard. <clears throat> Third, a change in composition of the blood, rendering it less stimulating, the proportion of serum becoming increased after bleeding in consequence of it being reduced with greater facility than the other elements of the blood. I don't fully understand that, but somehow you kind of take it out and it replenishes itself in an easier way. Fourth benefit of bloodletting, the production of, I don't even know this is, syncope for the purpose of effecting a sudden general relaxation of the system. You take a lot of blood out, you faint, right? <laughs> That's good because your system's going to relax. 
Fifth, the derivation or drawing is it's alleged to the force of circulation from some of the internal organs toward the open outlet of the superficial vessel. In other words, the force of circulation, these internal organs, right, you can relieve that and help that. And uh, these indications may be fulfilled by either opening a vein or an artery. Now, to us, that just sounds ludicrous, but to them, it was perfectly logical to them. We have a different perspective on the matter today, and we see things differently than they viewed things a couple hundred years ago. And you know what? So it is with God. When God looks down upon the earth, He has a different vantage point. What might make, seem to make perfect sense to our minds, if we had a different vantage point, we would see how crazy and how ludicrous that is. It's because God's ways aren't our ways. And perhaps in eternity, God will allow us to know many of His ways that we would see and be comforted by them. Now we're simply called to trust in Him even if everything doesn't fully make sense to us. Well, as all of you know, most of you know, almost everyone, we are in a summer, topical summer sermon series entitled, Not Our Ways. Last five weeks, I've been taking up different topics from different portions of Scripture that demonstrate how God's ways aren't our ways. If we would create a world, we'd probably not create it in this way. And I've taken all these topics from a, a sermon by Edward Payson, which we've printed out, placed there on the back table. I encourage you to read it. How many of you have read this sermon by now? Okay, good. About maybe a fourth of you, maybe maybe a third. I'm, I'm encouraged with that. But every single one of my sermons are coming from this middle section of, of this sermon here where he puts forth eight examples <clears throat> in which this difference between God's ways and our ways most strikingly appears and now we come to number six this morning and I've just taken each of these subjects he's brought up because this sermon made such an impact on me I brought each of these topics up and just causing us each week this summer to really think about the ways in which God's ways are different than ours here's what he said number six Edward Payson <clears throat> He said, a wide difference between God's thoughts and ways and our own appears when we consider the manner in which He dispenses the benefits which Christ has purchased and the character and situation of those whom He chooses to make wise unto salvation. And here's the key line of what I'm going to pick up. There's so much in here I could have picked because He brings up several things. I'm just choosing one. I'm picking this one. We should expect that if such a Savior were provided, all would be saved. And if for any reason this were impossible, the most noble, wise, rich, and learned, or at least the most moral and amiable, would always be called. But we see this is not the case. It's evident from the Scripture, if anything can be, that all will not be saved. And it's also evident from observation, so far as we can see. For we find that multitudes appear to live and die without any spiritual knowledge of the Savior or preparation of heaven. If we create a world, we've created it where all are saved. God hasn't. And God has created a world in which multitudes are perishing in their sins. We find also, both from Scripture and observation, that it's not always the most wealthy, wise, or learned, or not even the most moral and amiable who are called to embrace the gospel. Christ told the moral but self-righteous Pharisees that the publicans and harlots would go into the kingdom of God before them. Hath not God said, James, chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Ministers and private Christians are very often find Reason to acknowledge that God's thoughts and ways are not like theirs, for He rarely converts such as they think the most probable subjects of conversion. And while they are watching such persons and daily hoping, expecting to see them embrace the truths, others of whom perhaps they never thought start up and seize the prize. 
My message this morning is entitled, Not Our Ways, Few Will Be Saved. I think if we would have created a world, we would have created a world in which all are saved. I mean, all of us are universalists at heart in many ways. We want many, many people to be saved. And that ought to be really our heart. But that's not how God has set it up. It's not the world that God created. God has created a world in which only a few will be saved. I was recently talking with uh, someone about my, my sermon and uh, what's going to come up this week. And I, I told this man about how I'm going to be preaching about how there will only be few saved and many be lost. And, and I appreciate what this one said. He said, I wish it were the other way around. I wish that many were saved and that few were lost. You know, and that's a great heart to have. And I want to encourage and foster that heart in all of you. But that's just not how it is with God. God saves a few and the many are damned. It's not our ways. We may not like it, but that's the reality of the Scriptures is that only few are saved. And one of the best texts in which this is taught is comes in, in Luke chapter 13. I invite you to open your Bibles there. Luke chapter 13. I want to read for you verses 22 through 30. And to be honest with you, I don't know how far through this passage I'm going to get. We'll just we'll see. I've got I've got a bunch of things to speak about as I as I studied this this week. It was fascinating, and um, but we might get through everything. I'm not sure. We'll see if the Lord directs. But here, Luke 13 verse 22. So Jesus was passing from one through from one city and village to another teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. It's a sobering verse. It says, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door. And you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. And then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. In this text, we see Jesus on his way up to Jerusalem. That is the context of Luke. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, describes how Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. And from that point on, in this epistle, everything takes a change. He's headed toward Jerusalem and he is, he's walking there. Maybe not exactly straight there, but that's where his mind is set. That's where his focus is set. And that's where we see even him coming here in verse 22. He's on his way up to Jerusalem. And on his way, he's doing what he was always doing. It says here that he was teaching. We know that as he passed through villages, he was also healing. He was casting out demons. He was preaching. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God. We don't know where this took place, but we do know that he was on the way to Jerusalem doing everything that he normally did. And then in verse 22, someone comes up to him and asks him a question, saying, verse 23, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? 
And then verses 24 through 30 is the answer to that question. Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And um, Jesus took this question and He answered it. And you think about this in verse 23, about why this man asked this question. Why, why this man would say, Lord, are there just a few being saved? I think that this man was very perceptive. I think that this man was watching the ministry of Jesus. I think he was observing what was taking place in the ministry of Jesus, listening to what Jesus was saying, watching what Jesus was doing. And he came to the conclusion, you know what? There aren't a lot of people really coming to Jesus and being saved. Lord, is it true that there are just a few who are being saved? Now, certainly the crowds were following him. But if you look closely at how the crowds are following him, they're always following him loosely. It's almost like Jesus had this inner circle and the crowds were just beyond that. You know, it's almost like they were, they were on the edge of the pool saying they're swimming, but they were just dipping their toes in it, kind of interested in swimming, but never really swimming. But crowds around, but few were in the pool actually swimming with Jesus. And when Jesus was approached, it's very interesting, He often challenged the one coming to Him so as to make following Him the more difficult. People come to Jesus and say, I will follow you. And rather than saying, come on, right ahead, let's go. right? Let's make this as easy as possible. Let's make it as painless as possible. Here are the papers. Sign up. Come on in. We're going to make it easy. You know what Jesus often did? He challenged them and made it even harder for people thinking about coming in. In fact, Turn back to Luke chapter 9 and we'll see this being the case. In verse 57, they're going along the road and eventually up to Jerusalem there. And um, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. What a great commitment. What a great statement. I'm going to, Jesus, wherever you go, I'm going to go. And then Jesus said here in verse 58, come along, he says. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. You want to come with me? I want to see if you're really up to the challenge. Foxes, they can rest in holes. And birds, they have nests where they can go and sit and relax for a while. But you come and follow me, you're going to have no rest. I'm not sure you know what you're signing up for. You're signing up for fatigue is what you're signing up for. You are signing up for a hard way, a tired way. We need to be on the alert constantly. We need to see what's going on. We're always going to be on the move. Are you willing to come? He wanted to challenge him. He made the way more difficult. In verse 59, we see another one coming. Actually, he said, follow me. This man made up an excuse. He was willing to come, but he wanted to delay it just a bit to bury his father first. And Jesus said, verse 60, allow the dead to bury their own dead. As for you... Go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. It says, don't delay in following me is what Jesus is saying. If you want to follow me, you need to come now or never. It's kind of hard. He wanted to to go and be with his family a little bit. Maybe bury his father. We don't know if his father was maybe on his deathbed. He wanted to wait a couple weeks. He said, no, no, no. It's now or never. Making the standard harder for him to follow him. When a third man came to Jesus... Simply requesting to go home and say goodbye. Verse 61, I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. It doesn't take long to say goodbye. It might take as short as five minutes. It might take 
a day or two as you have a final meal together to say bye-bye i'm going off a mission i'm following jesus and jesus would have none of it he says no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of god you can't go back if you're going to follow me you need to follow me now is what he needs to do jesus was hardly bending in any way to produce more converts and if anything jesus seemed to be ensuring that his followers were few in numbers because he increased the high demand of discipleship and what it meant for him to follow him. That's what Jesus was. And it draws this man to conclude, hey, are there just a few who are being saved? You know, when the crowds would often come to him, Jesus would often preach an audience reduction sermon, is what I call it. Crowds coming all around, and he preaches so as to diminish the crowds and reduce them and push them away. In fact, you even see in Luke chapter 11, verse 29... The crowds were increasing and Jesus denounced their generation. (laughs) Your generation just seeks for a sign. I'm not going to give you a sign except the sign of Jonah. The queen of the south is going to rise up against you. The men of Nineveh are going to stand up against you. Just preaching denunciation, making it it harder rather than receiving the crowds willfully and easily. He He just condemned them. In fact, in chapter 12, verse 1, after condemning a a Pharisee and a lawyer, and we're skipping a bunch of this, we could go through here. Verse 12, under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were stepping on one another. Jesus had such a huge crowd of people. Look down here in verse 56, what Jesus is saying. Verse 54, he was saying also to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze the present time? Crowds coming, thousands coming upon him, and he's calling them all hypocrites. Casting them away, pushing them away. Pushing him away is what Jesus was doing. Rather than ushering it in and making it easy, he was pushing it away. In chapter 13, the same time, someone comes up and says about this report about Pilate mixing their blood with the sacrifices. Probably there were people in the temple sacrificing. Pilate ordered some people to be killed in the temple on the temple grounds. So Jesus, what do you think about that? Rather than making a political statement, he again drives it to the heart. And he says in verse 3, I tell you, unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. He says in verse 5, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Rather than getting off into political issues, he, he got down to the core of the issue. He says, you all need to repent or you're going to perish. And then he tells this parable to the crowds about this man having a fig tree planted in his vineyard, verse 6. He was looking for fruit on it, didn't find any. He went back for three years. He said, I'm not finding any fruit. Let me just tear it out. And the guy says, no, no, no give it one more year. And then if it doesn't bear fruit, then he can tear it out. And, and, and the implication is obvious. The application is obvious. I've been with you for three years. And I've been preaching and you're not bearing fruit. Yeah, there's lots of you, but there's no fruit. You need to repent. And you come back. <laughs> so Jesus, people come to him. Rather than make it easy, he oftentimes makes it really hard. And the result of that is that there are few that really follow him. I mean, the death of Jesus is a perfect illustration that he entered Jerusalem. Many people were singing his praises. 
Hosanna, Hosanna. And they wanted him, right? Hey, he's our king, come on. And yet when he was crucified, who was around? It's like just a few women. The disciples were scared to death. Wouldn't even show their face publicly. Thousands were, were, were rolling over each other trying to see Jesus. And yet his death, very few. You know, there are only few that are saved. And this question this man asks here in, in Luke chapter 13, verse 23 that we're looking at is a, is a good question. It's an insightful question. He correctly discerned the ministry of Jesus. Sure, crowds were attracted to him, but few actually followed him in true discipleship. And far from making it easy for disciples to come, he was making it harder. And this man wanted clarification. He says, are there just few who are being saved? Now, what's interesting as I thought about this is this man didn't need to see the ministry of Jesus and be real perceptive of the ministry of Jesus to, to realize that there are only few who are saved. Any Jew who knew the Scriptures could have asked this question if they thought about the history of the Bible. I mean, just think with me about the history of the Bible. Think about Noah. Here's Noah. God looks down upon the sons of men and sees wickedness everywhere. God determined to destroy the whole world. But, but He saved some. Did He save many people? How many people did He save? Children. How many people did He save? You guys know? Yes, Hannah. Eight. Right? Mr. and Mrs. Noah and their three sons and, daughter, and wives. Right? Eight people. And we don't know how many people are on the earth. You can look through the genealogies of Genesis chapter 5. Millions probably. Millions. And how, did he, how many did He save? Eight. Is that few or is that many? Okay, few. Greater than, less than, right? Less than. How about during the days of Abraham? Abraham's nephew Lot was caught in Sodom. And uh, God said, go rescue Lot because I'm going to destroy the city. And so Abraham starts praying to God and says, God, you wouldn't destroy the, the city if there were 50 righteous people in there, would you? And God says, Sodom, if there are 50 righteous people in there, I won't destroy the city. And he says, how about 45? So if there are 45 righteous people, I'm not going to destroy the city. And Abraham's wrestling here with God. And he reduces it down to 10 people. He says, if there are 10 righteous people in the city, I won't destroy the city. What happened to Sodom? Fire and brimstone from heaven. Psh, took it up. Destroyed the cities of the valley. Right? The obvious conclusion is this. There were fewer than 10 righteous people in Sodom. We don't know how big a city it was. It may have been... 100 people may have been 10,000 but even if it was te- even if it was 100 people is is 10 few or many it's few how about considering those who came out of Egypt at the time of the exodus yes indeed god saved many people coming out of exodus coming out of Egypt but when they're going to take in the promised land right there were 12 spies who went in they spied out the land. Ten of them said, Ah, oh, the Anakim, they're too big. Two of them said, No, we should take the land. And who did the people follow? They followed the ten. They said, We're not going to take the land. They're too big. They're too hard. And Paul comments on this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, With most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. With how many people of the generation that were saved out of the exodus was God well pleased to ultimately go into the promised land? Two. 
Joshua and Caleb. Is that, is that few or is that many? I think it's few, if my math is correct. You think about the book of Judges, that whole book, you get a sense of the wickedness of God's people. Every generation. It's a godless society. And then they cry out to the Lord and God gives them a deliverer and maybe they change for a little bit, but they go back in their own ways so that at the end of Judges 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. All did as they pleased, giving no thought to God. Very few righteous people in Israel at the time of the judges. Few righteous people in Israel during the time of the kings. Most of the kings were wicked. The vast majority of them were wicked. There were eight righteous kings out of maybe 40. And the people followed where the kings went. A cursory reading of the prophets revealed the same thing. Among the people of Israel, there were only a few righteous people. Rare is the prophet who arises and speaks for God. In fact, Isaiah was commissioned to a fruitless ministry. God told them, Isaiah 6, verse 10, Render the hearts of the people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Think about Elijah. After Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, he fled away to the cave at Horeb. You remember what he felt like? He felt like, God, am I the only one? And what did God say? There's 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's 7,000 whose mouth has not kissed Baal. Now, that might be encouraging, 7,000 people. Now, that's, that's a lot of people. But think about how big the size of Israel was at that time. If 2 million came out of the Exodus, and that was years, years, years before. I mean, we're talking millions of people. 7,000 people in light of millions is less than 1%. And then it gets worse when you realize that I've just taken examples for you from God's chosen people, how few there are saved. God's chosen people, Israel, was only a a small country compared to all the countries on the earth. And the the great testimony of them is that they were wicked. And Oh, you do get encouragement of Nineveh at one point, which repents. The vast majority of all the other nations are, are godless scripturally that's the way the Bible speaks it's always few that are saved I think about how easy it is for us to think differently I want you to think about the funerals you go to how many of you ever been to a funeral where anybody has said well that man lived an unbelieving life he's in hell right now I've never been to a funeral like that maybe some of you have I've been to lots of funerals where I know the person was an unbeliever, a wicked unbeliever, where there was assurance given of him being in a better place, right? Is that your testimony as well? We don't think this way. Our ways are not God's ways. J.C. Ralph said it well, the Bible and the men of the world speak very differently about the number of the saved. According to the Bible, few will be saved. According to the world, many. According to the men of the world, few are going to hell. According to the Bible, few are going to heaven. According to the men of the world, salvation is an easy business. According to the Bible, the way is narrow and the gate is straight, which we're going to be looking at here in verse 24, since we can get there. According to the men of the world, few will be found at last seeking admission into heaven when too late. According to the Bible, many will be in that sad condition, will cry in vain, Lord, Lord, open to us. <clears throat> so this man asks in Luke 13, verse 23, are there just a few who are being saved? <clears throat> yes. 
There are just a few who are being saved. That's God's way. There are just a few. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, this is exactly what Jesus affirmed. He said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many there are who enter through it. The gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few there are that find that one. There's a broad way which many people find. It's the way to destruction. It's the way of the world. It's the way that's natural, right? There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death, Proverbs 14, verse 12. The broad way is the easy way. Many find that way, but the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few there are who find it. You know, and and I do believe that we always need to keep these things before our mind. We always need to understand that it's the few who are saved and the many who are lost. I have a poster here that I have uh, placed in SR's room. And it is a, is a great poster. It says, The Narrow and the Wide Gates, Matthew seven thirteen to 14. And here you can see the wide road leading to destruction up here. And here you see this narrow gate. It's a small gate. There's a preacher in front of it. And the little stairs and winds all around real tight. And then it gets up to heaven. These are the two ways that we always need to keep before us. I was talking to SR about this. I said, SR, do you look at this? And what did you say? <laughs> More than daily. Like he fits two days into one, I guess, or something. He he watches it, looks at it every day. The two ways are placed before him. You know, if if there's somebody interested, I can show you where you can get this poster. It's real cheap. Put it up in your kids' rooms. Let them contemplate um, the narrow way and the broad way. This is the choice that all of us face. This is the broad way and the narrow way, and this is the way we want to find. It's the narrow way, and there are few that find it. It's literally covered with Bible verses. You can kind of read them and, and look over them. Are there just a few who are being saved? Yes, there are just a few who are being saved. Well, let's look at how Jesus answered the question. He didn't say yes straight out here, but He does answer in a, a very interesting way, affirming that yes, there are a few that are saved. Jesus answered the question with here. I'll give you a three-part outline. A command, some warnings, and another perspective. A command... Some warnings and another perspective. The command comes here in verse 24. Strive to enter the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able to. First thing Jesus says is this. Don't worry about the number of people entering the kingdom. Worry about yourself. Strive to enter the kingdom yourself. That's what Jesus says. Don't be worried about these esoteric concerns. Worry about your own soul. You know, I've met and talked with many people over the times of my short life who concern themselves with the the salvation of the African savage who's never heard the gospel. And they spent much time thinking about this person who lives and and no missionaries ever come to them and and they've lived in an animistic society and eventually die. What about them? And what would Jesus say? (laughs) Don't worry about him. Worry about yourself. How many are concerned about those people and they're not concerned about themselves? Perhaps Jesus at this point discerned this man was concerned about the number of people in the kingdom. Concerned is be too few and not too many. Maybe he's going to lead down, well, then, then God's not fair if He gives only a few salvation and doesn't save the multitudes, doesn't save the many. And maybe he's going to attack God somehow. I don't know. But Jesus simply said this, strive to enter the narrow door. And it comes to us. 
maybe today has found you in the same situation. You hear the many who are lost and you think they're lost without a reason. Maybe you think through the Bible, why were all these people right laid low in the wilderness? What about all these people in, in Egypt or in Ethiopia or Sudan during the time? The gospel, they didn't hear about the true God. What about them? Maybe that's your situation. You're all concerned about them and you're missing your heart. Just may, be concern, just may be that the concerns that you have for others need to be turned to yourself. What about me? Because you all have heard the gospel. You've heard it come loud and clear. You've heard of the work of Christ on behalf of sinners. Are you embracing that? Are you striving to enter the narrow door? Because, see, the way of salvation is tight. It's restricted. There's only one salvation. It's through Jesus Christ. John 10, verse 9 says, I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. If you don't go through the door of Jesus, you won't be saved. The door of Jesus is a small door. I heard someone say it's about this wide. The width of Jesus' shoulders. He said, I'm the door. It's a small door. Most doors we go through are three feet wide. The door of Jesus is small. We've got to squeeze through that door. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The door through which Jesus calls people is a difficult door. We've seen in Luke chapter 9 already of the difficulty that it makes it for people. Turn over to Luke chapter 14. And look at how, look at beginning in verse 25. How difficult Jesus makes entering the kingdom. Again, verse 25, large crowds are going along. And Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Here says, count the cost. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, the conclusion, here it is, verse 33. None of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. And you let this sink in. This is why there are few who are saved. Because the call is... It's hard. Three times in this passage, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple if this is the case. You cannot be my disciple if this is the case. You cannot be my disciple if this is the case. The first case dealt with family. You, if you want to be my disciple, you need to give up your family. Sacrifice the relationship that you have with your father. Give up your mother. Right To follow me might mean marital strife, the likes of which you've never seen before. You need to forsake your children. Brothers and sisters must take a distant second to Jesus because he must be more important than your family. Jesus said, verse 26, the last half, verse 27. If you want to be my disciple, you need to hate your very life. You need to die to yourself. Willing to give yourself completely to cause. Take up your cross, right? Be willing to die. It's an instrument of death you need to take up. You need to die to yourself. Your, your life is done. Over. You die to yourself. If you don't, look what it says verse 27, you cannot be 
my disciple. It makes sense why there are only a few who are saved with such a call. Verse 33. So then, none of you can be my disciple. Here's the third condition. With possessions. If you want to be my disciple, you need to give up all your own possessions, is what Jesus says. All your earthly resources are mine. Your paycheck is mine. Your house is mine. Your car is mine. Your IRA is mine. You cannot love the world and mammon. You need to give it up. You need to let it go. That's the narrow door. Somebody say, well, that's a hard door to go through. Well, that's the door of Jesus. Yes, there are only a few who are being saved. Look here again. Luke chapter 13, verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. This word strive comes from the Greek word agonizomai. It comes from the word we get agonize. We can easily translate this. Agonize to enter through the narrow door. Agonize. You ever be in agony? You ever been in agony before? You ever ever suffered for Christ? Have you you ever taken your Christian life, your Christian walk, your Christian... Has it ever come to the point of agonizing and struggling and pushing and pressing on to get through that door? That's what Jesus says. You need to agonize to enter through the narrow door. You know, the Christian life isn't a a life of ease. It's a life of struggle and difficulty. I have a friend. His name is Steve Watkins. Um, He's a a great guy. I met him in Israel. His childhood dream was to be a Navy SEAL, some of the most well-disciplined, well-trained of the armed forces. And in fact, he did become a Navy SEAL. And then, while serving his country, he found Christ, quit being a Navy SEAL, became a pastor in Kentucky, and wrote a book, which is a testimony about being a Navy SEAL. He wrote, Steve Watkins did this book, Meeting God Behind Enemy Lines. His book describes, the first half of the book is, is the best part of the book. He describes his, um, his training. And in fact, the training for the Navy SEALs, they, they go out and recruit the toughest, meanest, maybe not meanest, toughest, um, strongest, fiercest men that they can find, enroll them in the Navy SEALs training, and then lose 70% of them. Because it is so tough. Many fall out in the process. And that's by design. They design it that way because even as he wrote, he says the instructor's goal is easy to understand why they seem so heartless and cruel at times. In reality, it was not that they were heartless or cruel, but they needed to weed out the candidates who might break mentally behind enemy lines and possibly endanger the whole squad. That's what Jesus is saying. You've got, you got to give up your family. You've got to agonize. You know, maybe that family is going to be... You're not worthy of me if you're loving your family, you're loving your life, or you're loving your money. Well, I want to share with you a little bit about what true agony is about. After about eight weeks of training, 12 weeks of training, where they really got their bodies really in shape, then they entered Hell Week is what they did. Hell Week started at 9 o'clock Sunday evening. Three hours of push-ups, sit-ups, flutter kicks, another tiring exercise, he said. At midnight... Then the class was ordered into frigid waters, the Pacific Ocean, for surf torture. This is agony. This painful training exercise involved walking knee-deep in the ocean, then turning to face the beach in one long line. As our class was strung out and parallel to the beach, we interlocked our elbows, sat down the water in sync with the instructor's command. As we sat down, the water came up to our necks. Wave after wave washed over our heads and shoulders and chilled us to the bone. The rushing waters sucked the heat out of our tired bodies. 
The painful cold seemed unbearable as we shivered uncontrollably and began to lose body heat and dexterity. At the point when our speech became slurred, the beginning stage of hypothermia instructors would bring us back to the beach and engage us in more push-ups, sit-ups, and flutter kicks to restore our bodies to the normal temperature. Three hours of search torture ended at 3 o'clock in the morning when the class was ordered to run a mile down the beach to a steel pier that jetted out in the ocean. And as they ran, they, they carried these inflatable boats, 250 pounds, you know, a couple guys in this boat running this beach. Once there, Steve Watkins writes, the order was given for us to strip off all our clothes except the spandex triathlon shorts that we wear as underwear. The air temperature was in the low 50s. The ocean water was 60 degrees. Just standing there without clothes chilled us in the wind as the wind made contact with our bare skin. We were then told to lay down with our backs flat on the cold steel pier. It felt so cold at first I thought my skin was going to stick to the metal. The unbearable cold was intensified when instructors began spraying a cold mist of water over our shaking bodies with a hose. I could hear the knock of bones hitting steel as we shivered uncontrollably. To warm up, we were ordered to jump into the bay at a normal body temperature that would have felt like a freezing plunge, but after a treatment on the pier, the bay water felt refreshingly warm. As soon as her skin temperature adjusted to the 60 degree water, however, we slowly began to feel cold again. About that time we began to feel cold, the instructors pulled us out of the water for more torture on the pier. And again, the cold spray felt intense, and again, uncontrollable shaking resulted. I never imagined that shivering could be so painful, and our muscles started to cramp from involuntary response to the intense cold. I remember the instructor saying, we could secure the training exercise if one person quit. And someone did quit, but the training exercise continued on. That's agony. I'm not sure Christ calls us to that agony, but he did tell those in Smyrna, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So he says here, strive to enter the kingdom of God. Strive to enter through the narrow door. And it's not that we do work to enter the kingdom. It's not that we do all these works of righteousness that enter. Rather, our work is giving up everything for Christ. That's where the work is. In fact, I think it's in John 14. I forget what it is. This is the work that you need to do. You need to believe in me. And in believing in him, all the implications of that is if we believe and trust in Christ, he's our all in all, that future eternal glory, we need to let go of everything else that's on the earth. We can't, we can't grab onto it. We can't hold to it. We can't get through the small door over that. And we agonize over loss of family potential. We agonize over loss of ourselves so we're willing to die for Christ. We agonize over loss of financial control. These things, right? Our family and our, our lives, our finances, our, our stuff that they like pull us down and they, they, they drag us down and we need to agonize in just letting them go for Christ. Well, that's the command in verse 24. And then he follows it up with four warnings. First warning is this. Many will fail to enter. The last half of verse 24. Many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So one of the most shocking verses in Scripture People trying to enter the kingdom and not being able. I mean, it's shocking to us because we know verses like Deuteronomy 4.29. You'll seek the Lord, your God. You will find Him if you search for Him with all your heart and all your soul. We know verses like Jeremiah 29, verse 13. You will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. But here we see people searching and seeking and not being able to be saved. And I think the key here is here, they're not being 
they're not searching with the whole heart. Because both in Jeremiah 29, Deuteronomy 4, it speaks about a whole heart. Here they're seeking to enter, but not wholehearted. They're still holding on to their things that they want to keep. You can't do that. you got to let those things go. The promise of Scripture, right? If you search for Him with all your heart, you'll find Him. He's not, he's not hard to find. As Paul said on the hill at Mars Hill, He's not far from us. In Him we live and move and have our being. He's right there. It's not so hard in one sense. <clears throat> but you need to seek Him with your whole heart. I think Jesus here is alluding to the crowds. Just hover close to Jesus, <clears throat> but never make that commitment to fully follow Him. They have an interest in Jesus, but that's all their seeking goes. Never giving up all they fail to have what they seek. Maybe they hold on to their family. My heritage, what will my parents think? Maybe they hold on to their life. I want to pursue my own pleasures in life. Thank you very much. I don't want to forsake them for you. Not knowing that ultimately that's where you'll find your truest pleasure. Maybe their finances. I've worked hard my whole life. I've built up my next tag. I'm going to go to the golf course. I'm not giving my money to the Lord's work. My money's for me. Maybe that's it. But it's sad but true. But many will fail to enter. Warning number two, verse 25. The time is short. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. These words, Jesus pictures probably the end of time when the door is finally shut. Those who are casually seeking the kingdom were shut out. Although they knock on the door, although they pound on the door, Jesus is unwilling to open to them because the time has passed. The door is shut. They now no longer have opportunity to repent. And oh, is it not the case that we want, we never want anything so badly until you no longer have the opportunity to obtain it? Right? Maybe, parents, you've seen kids arguing over the last piece of licorice or over the last candy bar. They really want it because they know that once it, they can't have any more. It's really fighting. The picture here of Jesus closing the door is probably the end of time. Things are final. Things are done. People wanting to get in. But you know, for us, it's different. Today is a day of opportunity. Today is a day of salvation. It's an opportunity for you all to come in, to stay in, to strive. Put your life behind you. Take up your cross. Follow Christ. Believe in Him. What a tragedy it might be for any of us even here today to say as Jeremiah did, People of Israel said, Jeremiah's day, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. What a tragedy. Harvest is past, summer's ended, and we're not saved. It's the end of time. Cry out to him before it's too late. Don't let the door shut. Well, the next warning may deal with some of you. <clears throat> Religion isn't enough. Verses 26 and 27. Religion isn't enough. Then you'll begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence and taught in your streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. There'll be those who seek entrance in the kingdom have a familiarity with Jesus. Right? They will say, Jesus, we ate with you. We drank with you. We invited you. You were in our homes. We heard your teaching. We attended the synagogue services. 
We heard your teaching. And Jesus will reject these people saying, I don't know where you're from. So what do you know? We were with you, Jesus. And I think the key here application for us is that they had religious involvement. They thought it was good enough for them, but it really wasn't. They thought they were okay, but they weren't. And Jesus said, depart from me, you evildoers. Here these people were continuing to practice evil, though sitting under the teaching of Jesus. They were big on religion, big on church services, big on church attendance. They didn't know Christ. They didn't follow after Him. Rather, they followed after their own ways. You know, you might be smug in your commitment to Rock Valley Bible Church. Say, hey, I'm here. I attend church every Sunday. I come to flock. I read my Bible. You may be up on religion, but you may not know Christ. And Jesus says, you know, it's not the religion. It's not being around me. It's not eating with me. It's knowing me. I remember the first time when I heard this taught. I was, ni- I was 21 years old, 19 years ago. I'm 40. Turned 40 this past year. I was involved in church my whole life, but I never knew that you could be religious and lost. Never knew you could be religious and lost. And at that point, when I heard you could be religious and lost, I said, God, help me. Let me seek you. I want to strive in that narrow door. I want to know Christ. It set upon my heart to follow Him with all my heart. God pricked my heart, gave me a desire to pursue Him and to know Him because of the fear of this very truth. I don't want to be rejected that final day. I don't want to be disluted, deluded. I want to follow after you. So God has given me a desire to agonize to enter through the narrow door. And are you agonizing? Are you agonizing? Are you resting in your religion? Because religion isn't enough. And the, the final warning comes here in verse 28. The suffering will be terrible. Jesus points here that in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> Imagine yourself a soldier in the Civil War. You're in battle on the front lines. Right? You're shooting and, and ooh, you got hit in the leg and you go down. And your comrades take you well behind enemy lines and you see the surgeon and the surgeon says, we need to take your leg off right below the knee. And he takes your musket and he empties it out. He's got a lead bullet in there. He says, here, puts it in your mouth. He says, here, you just bite on that. And the pain will be, you just bite on that bullet. Don't scream. Bite on the bullet. You'll be okay. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just a a grouping pain is what's going to take place. The suffering will be terrible. And then to make matters worse, (laughs) those who are shut out, in the pain, having their knee amputated, biting and weeping and crying, will look up and see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with smiles on their face, enjoying the pleasures of heaven. That's what it says. You're weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but yourselves being thrown out. I don't know how long they get to see them, whether it's just a glimpse But it's hard. I know it's one thing to suffer, but it's another thing to suffer when you watch others at ease. It's one thing to do the hard work of uh, cleaning the kitchen floor. But when you look up and see your brother or sister eating an ice cream cone, it makes it a lot worse, doesn't it? Will you take these warnings to heart? We realize that many will fail to enter. The time is short. Religion's not enough. And suffering will be terrible. 
In our ways, we might see that these warnings are sufficient to turn many sinners from their evil way. But the fact still remains that God's ways aren't our ways. The truth of the matter is that few are saved. Many will hear these things. They'll say, I failed to enter. No, I won't be among those. I'll be able to enter. And they say, time is short. No, time is not short. I'll, I'll repent soon. And the problem is, soon never comes. Tomorrow, that's where I'm going to believe. You know, tomorrow never comes because tomorrow has a tomorrow. Religion isn't enough. They say, oh yes it is. I'm going to show God how good I am. Suffering will be terrible. Oh, it won't be so bad. You know, what Steve Watkins experienced on that steel pier pales in insignificance the pain and the torment that will take place in hell. Rather than being cold, it will be hot. The pain will be severe. Well, I'm going to close this morning with another perspective, and we'll close real quick here. Verses 29 and 30. Jesus gives us another perspective of what's taking place here. He says, And they will come from east and west, from north and south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. You know, here's the great reality. I emailed out many of you on Thursday and said, you want to prepare for this text? I said, can you find the hope? And the hope is right here in verse 29. And the hope is this, is that people are going to come from all over the earth. right? And Jesus here is picturing the salvation is no longer just this little country Israel. It's going to be everywhere. People are going to come from north and people are going to come from the south and people are going to come from the east and they're going to come from the west to dine at my table. Right? He's predicting and anticipating the worldwide spread of the gospel. All over. And with this worldwide spread, there is a sense here where there's going to be a lot of people in the kingdom. And though the number of people who are saved are few, in comparison to those who are damned, still that few is going to be many. Revelation. I think it's chapter 5 maybe. No, Revelation 7. I forget. But I have the text on here. It says, John saw those who were being saved. He says, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A multitude which no one can count will ultimately be there. Though it's few in comparison, There'll be many. We'll come from the east and the west and the north and the south. And you know what? That includes us in the west. It includes all who will come to Jesus. I don't care if you're from America. I don't care if you're from Albania. I don't care if you're from Russia. I don't care if you're from China. Vietnam. All these places all around the throne. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be represented before the throne of God someday. And in this we can rejoice. And it matters not where they come from, when they come from, all will share the glories of heaven. That's what verse 30 is about. Some will be last will be first, and some are first who will be last. They'll all equally share. And Jesus is anticipating here and just saying that, you know what, though there are few who are saved, that will be a great multitude from all over the world. I just ask you, are you one of that number? Have you entered into that salvation? If so, even I'd like for you to take your hymnal. You know what, Andy? I'm going to lead this last song here because I think it appropriately ends our message. Hymn number 513.
Hymn number 513 says, Thank You, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank You, Lord, for making me whole. Thank You, Lord, for giving to me Thy great salvation so rich and free. And if you realize that you're one of those people called from the West to come and dine with Abraham at the great feast, what can you say? Let's say, Thank You, Lord, for saving my soul. So let's just sing that together. Thank you, Lord.